Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, uh, we've got a couple of emails that we'll be responding to that will take us down various rabbit holes. The tangents await. Yes. All um, of our listeners cry out. <laughs> Is there any way that you could bring up an email, say that you're going to talk about it, talk about something completely different for 10 minutes, and then never answer the question? The answer for you is yes. Yeah, that's right. That's our branding, and we're on brand. So this comes. Uh, this first email comes to us from Oliver. First, I want to congratulate you on having at least one listener in Nampa, Idaho. Well, your hometown. My hometown, right? What so, was your high school mascot? Uh, we were the the Hawks, Skyview Hawks. Okay, that's right. I was a Nampa Bulldog for a year, and then they built Skyview, and then. I was within that. I thought you were going to tell me that like- you, I was kicked you, out. You started, uh, because they wanted you on the basketball team, they they, they brought you across lines. They and... did not. Oh, okay. <laughs> they did not. So uh, look, um, if you want to know how to get your email read, mention things from Western Idaho or possibly South uh, Eastern Idaho, and that is that is the surefire way right. to get or, that Or frankly, force- Alleged criminals <laughs> handcuffed in the back of your car to listen to the podcast. I, yeah, yeah, so if so, you're a peace officer, please don't please don't go out and just handcuff random people. Citizens arrest, get in the back, <laughs> yeah. you're listening on yeah. Freemasonry on, 2. Don't put on your pith helmet and decide that you are a, a citizen's auxiliary police member or some kind of local police force. So I so I grew up we were we were in the county when I when I grew up. Uh we got a library card late in my high school uh time. We were incorporated into Nampa proper oh. late in my high school time and um yeah, I I love I love Idaho and I love Nampa and uh, it was a beautiful and wonderful time. My first job was at 12th Avenue Car Wash. On Twelfth Avenue. Oh, it's very yes. well na- aptly named Twelfth Avenue. <laughs> it was Car good. Wash. Anyway, so I saw that and I was like, oh, you know what? Yeah, that's all right. What we do apologize that we have gotten many emails of late. I can only assume it's the same listener changing their name, <laughs> spoofing other email addresses, and sending them in over and over again. Yeah, it's it's my wife saying, "Why aren't you doing more around the house? You haven't done the dishes." Since. Yeah, this is a very specific <laughs> que- question from a listener in in uh, Zimbabwe. I noticed you didn't take Rigdon to school when you said that you would. <laughs> wow, that is. First of all, that's true. Second of all, you know, I, I but uh, we have gotten so many emails lately that we are drowning. Now, keep them coming. But uh, yes, we do we do read them all, we do enjoy them please all. Please do not feel offended if we haven't gotten to it. And you know, there and there are some that, you know, we we plan to talk about at some point and others that the topics make it difficult to do in a 1-hour podcast. It's difficult. So that, that's one of the things, uh, you know, for the past several um, months, we've done a lot of uh, email um, questions that allow Garrett to come in, you know, come in and be able to kind of do quicker hits where he goes through some of those things. Some of the questions that are asked are like, you know, 37 parters or 19 right, parters right. on like everyone this, on polygamy <laughs> or, or the succession or, you know, a lot of a lot of. Or um, the violence in Missouri, mm-hmm. or even talking about Liberty Jail requires so much context to get to it. So um, we we do intend to speak to those things, but uh, they're they're difficult to do, like you say, in, in kind of this format. So it's the it's the longer, and we part. have to wait to see how you know March Madness finally plays out, because if it can pay out. <laughs> Then we may not have to do this podcast anymore. The free podcast for which we're making no money. <laughs> oh, but there is also, this reminds me, there's a premium <laughs> content that you're welcome to uh, for to those sign up who for. want to help us keep the lights on, we do here uh, at Standard of Truth LLC. 
<laughs> the corporation. Uh, anyway, um, uh, so I don't even know what this uh, email's about. Just you mentioned Nampa. Okay, here we go. Yeah, you, uh, you lost control. I don't have any stories about putting kids to sleep with your podcast or forcing it upon detainees in a oh. squad car. <laughs> nice. But I do listen to every episode. In my defense, I have a lot of kids. And... <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Good for you, Oliver. Okay. Congratulations to you and your wife. Yep. Um, and but whenever we are together in the car, they completely take over, and I have no say in what gets played. And as an opt- uh, as an optometrist, I don't think uh, or I don't have the opportunity to handcuff anyone and force feed them your content. But who knows? Maybe one day I will start coercing my children or patients into listening. I wouldn't recommend that in Nampa, Idaho. Well. I mean, Nampa ain't Shelly. If you do any LASIK surgeries, though, right? I mean, that person's pretty captive. This is 100%. First of all, <laughs> for the record, huge fans of the Nazarenes. So if you are making anyone listen to this, Nazarenes, uh, Northwest Nazarene University is in Nampa, Idaho. There is uh, There are a ton of uh, Nazarenes there. Some of my best friends in high school and, and still are Nazarenes. And uh, so there you go. So if any of them are there, perhaps I mean they're they're Methodists in a way, and oh, some of their now well, coming for okay. You. Well, now every okay. Nazarene that listens is going to be <laughs> they're, they're, they're a not. they're a super Methodist uh, is the way wow. that my Nazarene friend explained okay, that's, it to me. You claim you have a Nazarene friend. Yes, I, yes, yeah. I have so many Nazarene friends. Uh, since my Make a Wish request for a third Freemasonry episode has yet to come to fruition. By the way. Garrett will be coming and uh, giving a uh, a linger longer on Freemasonry in our ward at the end of March. Uh, <laughs> Are you inviting him to that? Uh, yeah, you know what, Oliver? Come on down. Yeah, yeah. it's not that far of a drive, and <laughs> you could probably bring hours. some of Richard's old yearbooks with you when you come. Um, I know that my question is definitely a sensitive topic and needs to be discussed with all due propriety. But it is something that is discussed on the internet by those who are against the church. And so I feel that it should be addressed in a faithful setting as far as possible. My question is on the second anointing. I know that in addition to being a topic that is used by those who are antagonistic to the church, there are some ex-members of the church who wrote some exposés on their alleged second anointing that is out there on the internet. Obviously, this isn't something that is readily available to study on the church's website or other official sources, but I did find one reference to it in the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Since I don't know of anyone who knows the Joseph Smith Papers better than you, and by that I assume, Oliver, that you're talking to me. But Richard, well, Nampa, got to stay together. That's right. Uh, I was hoping that you could give some historical context on this and some commentary on why there might be additional temple ordinances that aren't available to the general membership of the church. And if these ordinances appear to be something that is required for our exaltation. Thank you again for your excellent podcast. I look forward to the new episodes every Thursday. Keep up the excellent work. Oliver. Wow. Why did you read this one? Uh, Richard just decided to throw a fastball right down the pipe. Um, So, I'm not sure where to start with this. Let me start first as a historian, okay? Uh, First of all, I'm not qualified, nor will I ever be qualified, and and please remember that, anyone listening. I, I don't have the ability to declare doctrine, to speak at what doctrine should be or shouldn't be. I have no keys. I, I I mean, I legitimately don't even have actual keys to our church. I have no calling that matters in any way uh, to, to anyone. And doctrine and, and how doctrine is taught is declared by the prophets and the apostles. That's their prerogative and their keys. I can only speak to a degree to what is understood historically as a historian and and that will likely be relatively unsatisfying, like all things every historian has ever taught. I mean, that you know, no one's ever listened to a historian and said, wow, I'm so glad I listened to that. Um, it is clear that Joseph Smith is teaching in Nauvoo that there are multiple 
additional ordinances outside of baptism um, that are available to some members at least. And one of these is this this other ordinance, which uh, appears to be of a highly sacred nature. Um, There are multiple places in Wilford Woodruff's journal, for instance, which you can, you can, everyone can go to Wilford Woodruff's journal online, the Wilford Woodruff Papers Project, uh, as a website, wilfordwoodruffpapers.org. Um, that is, uh, a project to bring these to light by faithful Latter-day Saints and, and the entirety of Wilford's incredible journal is, is on there and transcribed so that you wouldn't even need it transcribed because he has like the greatest handwriting of anyone from the 19th century. But, um, in it, uh, in, in the transcription, uh, of, of the journal, there are multiple places, especially in January of 1844, where Wilfred Woodruff makes a reference to these, uh, additional, uh, ordinances taking place. So for instance, um, met with the quorum of the 12. This is January 25th, 1844. Met with the quorum of the 12 at President Young's house, had a good prayer meeting. Um, brother Orson Hyde was present, had not met with us for some time. Orson Hyde received his second anointing. And so you have that listed out. Um, in another entry, you have, I met with the 12 this evening, also at Brother Brigham Young's. Time was spent in exhortation mostly. Uh, Orson Pratt spoke and we were edified. Elder Orson, Elder Orson Pratt received his second anointing. So it, it clearly is this uh, additional ordinance that is being taught um, very selectively. Uh, what you don't have is thousands of these. And of course, uh, it is these members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles that are are a part of this. And being recorded in... In In the journal journal. of a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So you you reference two people that talk about it. Uh, The first being um, antagonists that are online. Um, All of the temple rituals have in some way or another, um, even our non-temple rituals, have been attacked, pilloried, uh, made fun of, and mocked. You don't have to go to too many general conferences before you see someone wearing temple clothing walking around the street to know that people are more than willing to mock the sacred ordinances in 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 the temple and, and in the church. These people make claims about our sacred ordinances and they make demands upon them as well. I have a right to know what you do in the endowment. The, the unprincipled audacity of someone to claim that because they want to know something, about a sacred religious tenet of another religion, that that is some kind of an imperative, is is frankly a demonstration of what a low class of individual you're you're listening to. If you are curious about what goes on inside a particular Buddhist temple, that's one thing. If you go online and attack the Buddhist monks who operate it because they won't grant you access and what are they hiding and how dare they with their orange robes and their shaved heads and they think, you know, they must be doing evil things in there. You, you aren't, that's not curiosity. That's anti-religious bigotry. And someone can say, well, I really want to know, but Religion is a personal and private uh, aspect of someone's character. They legitimately, both morally and ethically, don't owe an explanation 
of their most cherished sacred beliefs to literally anyone. The very people who seek to mock and to demand that more is known about it are themselves people who are showing so little respect to religion that they're the people who probably should least know about it. So we can know historically that there was something of this nature that was being done in Joseph Smith's time, that it was incredibly selective and obviously private. The only reason we have these records is because we have the entirety of people's journals from that time period. And so that makes access to these things much easier. Because they are related uh, to other sacred ordinances, there's, there's very little that we can really talk about here doctrinally. But there is another reason why this is being referenced a lot in more modern times, and that is multiple offshoot apostate groups that have left our church and sought to persuade others to leave our church have used these historical incidences, which we now know about because of the publication of those journals, to argue that the current church is somehow misguided and somehow led astray because, look, they were doing this all the time and everybody had this all the time. And if I don't have mine, then that means the church today must somehow be, be not the same church Joseph set up. It's, it's very much a straw man argument because lots of variables there are not known. What do you know, person making that argument? You know that you don't have it, and that's what you know. You don't know anything from any current journals or records. What you know is that you don't have it, and you're pretty sure you deserve it. Well, that probably in and of itself suggests you probably don't. Um, so that's another reason why it's it's around the internet, is is especially these apostate groups that make the argument that if you come and become acquainted with their secret works, uh, that you will, uh, you will have that experience, um, which is variously described in, in different ways. I think it's important to understand what we believe as Latter-day Saints. We believe without question that every single person who has ever lived on this earth and whoever will live on this earth is going to have an equal opportunity for the absolute highest degree of exaltation. So what does that mean? It means that any ordinance, any ordinance that is essential for our progression will be available to those that are faithful at some point in this life or the next. Now we can hem and haw and say, well, well, I, I, I really want, I, I really, I really want to have it now, or I really want to have this knowledge now. But, but the reality is as a Latter-day Saint, here's what you believe. You believe that there are essential ordinances that people need to have in order to be exalted. Notice I didn't say not go to hell because we've already go back and listen to DNC 76. Maybe we'll talk about it again. It's, it's like my favorite topic. It was Brigham Young's favorite topic too. He loved it. Talked about it all the time. Um, not initially. Initially you hate it. <laughs> you know, much like this podcast. You initially hate it. You hate it. You listen to it. Hate it a little more. Share it with someone else. They hate it. Share it. Someone else. They hate it. You listen to it again. Fifth time. Hate it a little less. Sixth time, hate it more. It goes back and forth. But um, the the reality is, while it is, I mean, the question that Oliver asked is very was very reverently asked and is very, you know, it, it, it's a good question. It's also one for which we we don't have the ability to answer outside of saying. There is no fear that anyone who has ever lived on this earth will not have access 
to every single ordinance necessary for exaltation. That fear does not exist because we have the promise. The promise is that God is no respecter of persons. Every single being, every one of his children, every person who in that preexistent life said, I will follow you, every single one of them will have an equal opportunity at exaltation. Now, I have no idea what equal opportunity of exaltation means or what it looks like because I'm not God and I don't know all things. But I would say that secret uh, or sacred practices are by definition things that we won't know everything about. Now, there were a lot of Uh, people in recent weeks who thought it was their prerogative to talk about sacred aspects of, of the temple endowment, right? Oh, oh, people have a right to know. Well, 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 people don't have a right to know. The Salt Lake Tribune would like a word. Yeah, sure. The Salt Lake Tribune thinks that they have a right to, the reality is people might want to know. But we cross a lot of lines when we go from I want to know to demanding a right to know. Being curious is not the same thing as being belligerent. And, and some people you know, kind of cross that line saying, well, we have every right to know whatever, uh, whatever is being presented. No, you don't. People who are fully active, faithful members of any religion are the only ones who have every right to know because that's their sacred ordinance. It's their sacred experience. Any more than you could demand that of, of any other religion. You can't. You can't demand it of someone that you will tell me what it is that I think you should tell me. That's that's uh, a preposterous position. So, um, yes, uh, you will find uh, references in the Joseph Smith Papers uh, website. You'll find references in other early uh, documents. But the attempts to extrapolate out from that, I think, uh, run up against you know, the desires of, of, of God through his prophets and apostles. If it was something that they felt like needed to be talked about more, the best part about having a living prophet is that they they then do that, right? So we don't have to, it's kind of like, it's actually similar to the the question of, you know, the second coming. Oh man, no, the second coming, like the, the prophets, they keep telling us that it this is the day that it's happening. And what they mean by that is, I really care about it. And that's not the same thing as the prophets are, are talking about it. So it's a great question, uh, probably a, a fairly ineffective answer. And I think that's probably best. Yeah. Or, like every answer I've ever given. I will say my uh, one of my favorite YouTube videos on the second coming was where somebody was, you know, they're, they're putting the pieces together. And they referenced a talk given by President Eyring where he, where he uh, read part of a scripture. And President Eyring doesn't read the verse that this person references, but it's two verses after the verses that he read. And this was the type of like, wow, what a... What a a breadcrumb! Yeah, yeah, exactly. He put it. Did you notice Elder Hiring's Easter egg that he put in there for all of us? I just that if you it. just happen to read two more verses later, and then you can find the seventh feather of the fourth horn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next email. Oh, we have another one. Yes, I yes. was ready to wrap it up right there, dear professors. As as are the listeners, <laughs> they've already voted with their feet. <laughs> if we had a ticker that showed people leaving, listening to the podcast, we should do a live one at some point. Yeah, a live we're, show. We're gonna do a live show broadcast on the radio network we don't have. Um, yeah, okay, that's a bad idea. Yeah, we'll be at Mod Pizza in uh, Spanish for we're come on at, down. We're actually often at Mod Pizza, and in fact, the last several times that we've gone, someone is. Someone has recognized one of us. Standard of Truth, brought to you by Mod Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Professor. They are not actual sponsors. We don't want them to feel tainted by us. <laughs> They're not listening. But I do love their pizza. Dear Professors, um, as I was listening on February the February 24th episode, 
your banter about everyone's slaughtering your names inspired me to in- invent what I believe to be a rather brilliant couple of names, a couple name for you, uh, Garrichard Leduc Mott. You're welcome. It's it, Brangelina. It just rolls it off does, the tongue. It does, yeah. Garrichard. Garrichard Leduc Mott. Sounds like you have to be more French when you say that. <laughs> Garrichon. Uh, you're probably right. Thanks so much for your podcast. Learning from your insights and chuckling at your banter truly is one of the highlights of my week. You uh, you should know that I always put you at the top of my queue, even if I'm right in the middle of an episode of a different podcast. Quote, we interrupt our <laughs> usually uh, our usual programming to bring you this breaking news. That's great. So we uh, like we make the the, the newsroom. Da, 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 yeah, da, da, yeah, da, we're da. like each time I listen, I come away with a stronger testimony of the restoration and a greater appreciation for the uh, incomparable blessings of the gospel. Finally, I have a question I've wrestled with for the last decade or so. How do we reconcile Heavenly Father's foreknowledge with our agency? I hate to think that the trajectory of my life is such that I'm incapable of making the necessary adjustments so that things will turn out different for me. I'm simply not willing to accept that I can't change. I wanted to just pause here. Um, It reminds me, um, um, if you see me, you'll usually find me combing through the classics. I'm reading. Oh, he has. I mean, Tacitus is always (laughs) on his arm. Uh, I mean, I I assume Ulysses as well. I mean. Well, so this, so I believe, so. Uh, from Homer's uh, Iliad, uh, oh, there's a okay. there's a tremendous uh, battle, and after the battle, uh, there's this uh, this quote. During this fight, I've seen a lot of changing, in the way you feels about me. <laughs> this is not from Homer. When's the last time you read Iliad? <laughs> I've read it enough to know <laughs> that you're quoting Rocky Four. And in the way I feels about you, in here, <clears throat> there, we're two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better than 20 million. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if I can change and you can change, everybody can change. Well, look, from I mean, thank you, Rocky Balboa. I mean, how dare you try to sneak a Rocky IV <laughs> reference past as Homer? My uh, thought experiment reminds me of the agonizing conversation between Scrooge. So I'm back to the email. Between Scrooge, <laughs> I'm no longer in the Iliad. The thought experiment <laughs> of Rocky IV. Um, <coughs> Dolph Lundgren loves us. I'm so sorry. They just go choked up thinking about Rocky IV. <laughs> it brought the wall down. Between Scrooge and the ghosts of Christmas yet to come. These are the shadows of things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be only? Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus, with what you show me. Hear me. I am not the man I was. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Good spirit, assure me that I yet may change these shadows by an altered life. Quick pause, Garrett. Your favorite uh, version of Christmas Carol is wow, wow. Um, Mine's man. the George C. Scott yeah, version from C. the. Scott. He's but a you great Scrooge. I gotta tell you, Muppets Christmas, Muppets Christmas Carol. Is is, Michael Caine is an incredible Scrooge. I yeah. mean, he just is. But the George C. Scott one, when I think of Scrooge in my mind. Or General you think of Patton. George Patton. <laughs> I, think either, I think George C. Scott, who was incredible. Yeah, it's very good. Also, yeah. Mickey's Christmas Carol, uh, also very good. Well, that one's short. It's it's short. Know. It's nice. Yeah. The George C. Scott one terrified our children. One of the biggest problems that we had uh, when I first got married was is we were trying to meld these different customs that we had. And right. as a child, we would watch the George C. Scott version of Christmas Carol, and then my, my dad would read Luke 2. And then we would go to bed and and uh, visions of sugar sugar plums, plums would, would dance, dance in, your head. in our heads. Yeah. And I remember my wife's traditions were very different. They had they would eat you know clam chowder in a in a bread bowl as as is the tradition of yeah. the time. From that's from from Luke seventy four. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so they they did that, and then they had a, a nice uh, fun musical sing along Christmas thing. It was very nice. 
I remember the first time I was like, oh, hey, yeah, we watched this movie from the mid 80s and she watched it and she was just she's like, this is terrifying. <laughs> it was it was one of the biggest things we fought over is uh, forcing that on. So our she does, dislikes George C. Scott. Version. Well, I mean, it's great, but it, like it terrifies a four year old, which that's part I, of the point. Uh, well, yeah. Tell me that Andrew isn't on a mission right now. He's on a mission right now because Tiny Tim, spoiler alert, if these shadows remain unaltered by the future. Anyway, uh, I realize my question doesn't really have bearing on church history, but I believe it's an important uh, doctrinal question. And I can't imagine that I'm the only one to have grappled with this conundrum. Uh, I would be most grateful if you could share your insight. Best wishes, Alan. It's a great question, Alan, and it is... One that um, philosophers have wrestled with for millennia. I mean, from Christian theologians and philosophers have wrestled with this question from the beginning of Christianity almost, from when we have recorded records. And we'll be able to answer it for you here in the next 20 minutes. I'm pretty sure we won't be able to answer it. But let me just say to start with, this question especially becomes... It especially gets traction in the Protestant Reformation. Now, look, now, everyone listening who's an you know Antinicene father, scholar of early Christianity, you know, I realize you're going to write in and say, actually, I, I I'm not saying that no one thought about this before the Protestant Reformation, but I am saying that in our cultural viewpoint. The things that affect us most culturally, and at least in the United States, is um, is a product of the uh, the questions surrounding the, the Protestant Reformation, and and the reason why it becomes such a big deal in the Protestant Reformation is this move away from any type of work having any bearing on salvation leads to a logical conclusion going the other way. So if I have to perform some works for my salvation, if I have to be baptized, for instance, if I have to... Uh, or even accept Jesus as a work, right? Well, eventually, that we'll get to that point. But even, even if we just start with a basic ordinance like baptism, if I have to do that, then the implication is that there's some kind of... Of, of will that I'm exercising in order to, you know, unless I trip and fall into a baptismal font at the same time, someone's performing the, the baptismal blessing with my name, you know, and it, it, the reality is there is an exercise of the will that accompanies the, the participation in ordinances that what we would call ordinances today, but you know, in early, the early church, you know, the Lord's supper, um, baptism, confirmation, things like that. The primary argument of Luther and other uh, Reformation theologians is that there is no saving aspect to any work. That salvation is absolutely by faith and grace alone. Now you're thinking, well, no, that's what all my Christian friends today think. Kind of. It's not actually what all your Christian friends think. Uh, it might be what they think today, but it certainly isn't the way they thought about it in the early Reformation. Okay, when when your friend says, "Yeah, I believe you just have to have faith in Jesus and you're saved," they are thinking about this in a in a pretty postmodernist, late uh, evangelical Christian sense. In the early Protestant Reformation, the way that they thought about both grace and faith is that those two things, in order for them to not be a work, as Richard pointed out, they had to come from God alone. If if there's something that I do to make myself worthy for grace or faith, well then, I may not be getting water tossed on my head, but I am doing something. And I think this is actually a really difficult thing for Latter-day Saints to come to terms with because whenever you hear a conversion story from a Latter-day Saint, I mean, I, look, I, fast and testimony meeting, I'm sure you've heard a lot of things. But generally, when you hear a conversion story from a Latter-day Saint, it involves them making a decision 
to search, ponder, and pray, right? Some, some kind of aspect of them saying, so I decided I was going to study. So I decided I was going to pray. You know, I, I didn't know what else to do, so I asked God. And so it, what is incredibly just, you know, common in our, our nomenclature is this idea that in some way, your works precede the gift of faith, right? That, that in some way. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't lead you where you need to go, and but at least for most Latter-day Saints, the way they perceive of their testimony arriving is it arrives because you asked God. You, you did Moroni's promise at the end of the Book of Mormon, and you asked and God answered. But you are the one that is doing this act of, of asking. Now, maybe God led you along, but you actually had to open up the book and read it. You had to ask God because it isn't just about asking God. What does, what does he say? You have to ask in, in faith. faith with a sincere heart, right? You, you have to, there, there are aspects of it all along the way. This is not what Martin Luther and John Calvin are saying when they talk about you are saved solely by faith and solely by grace. They are not saying, hey, once you believe and accept Jesus and say the words, I accept Jesus as my Savior and I confess him with my lips, they are not saying that's how salvation comes. Here's what they're saying. Everything starts with the fact that God, as, as your email, Alan, you know, points out, that God is all-powerful. First and foremost, God has all-power. Or as they would term it, especially Calvin, God is ultimately sovereign. Well, that begins to beg a question then. If God is absolutely sovereign, meaning God not only has all power, God knows all things. God knows exactly what is going to happen if God intervenes in the world. And he also knows what's going to happen if God does not intervene in the world. So having ultimate foreknowledge means, and this is certainly the way that Luther is going to interpret it. He's going to actually write a book. He'll get in a, a writing war. Uh, Luther is a, he is not a shrinking violet when it comes to the beliefs that he has. He is, he's one of those people that's more than willing to tell you how wrong you are and, uh, you know, how blasphemous you are for the things that you are thinking. And, he will get into a, a, a writing war uh, with Erasmus, the great Catholic theologian who is operative at the same time as Luther is in, in the Protestant Reformation. And this will be their argument. Does free will actually exist? I mean, this is kind of the, the question that Alan's asking. So you ask, I, I, you know, I can't believe other people haven't wrestled with this. Oh, and how? They wrestle with it even today. If you were to read... Religious, uh, you know, papers from theologians or, or religious philosophers, Christian philosophers. It, it is a question that is often begged. Why? If God has all power, then what actually is the worth of my will? Right? Um, this is especially problematic for Christians, which is all Christians, who believe that God created everything out of nothing and created us out of nothing. So not only are, is God all-powerful, our existence is finite and was created by God, which means the terms whereby we are brought into this world are utterly dependent on God, right? Or to put it, if I were to say it backwards, it would make it make more sense. Does God know before he creates me, where I'm going to be born. Yes. If you say he doesn't, well, then God stops being all-powerful. Okay, so God knows that. So does God know, before he creates me, that where he's going to have me be born will be to two atheist parents who will teach me my whole life that God doesn't exist and anyone who believes in him is a horrible person? Yes. So if God already knows that, God knows I'm going to never hear about Jesus growing up, the only thing I'm ever going to hear about God is that God doesn't exist. 
then what is God's role in the fact that I am never saved? God knew when he created me. And also put me in Indonesia in 500. Yeah, God, God knew when he created me that I would never even, let's say in that, for instance, you know, he has me born in Africa in 400 AD. He knows I'll never even hear the word Jesus. I'll never hear the word Jesus my whole life. He knew that when he created me. So it kind of begs the question of, well, why exactly did you create me? <laughs> I mean, you could have not created me, right, instead of creating me to burn in hell forever. Well, and if you did, why did you give me an immortal soul? Right. Why, why did you make it? Why did you give me an immortal soul knowing that I was going to burn in hell forever? Now, I realize Alan's question is more about what about my own actions, but it really it boils down to this idea of God's sovereignty because people like Erasmus would argue, look, yes, God's all-powerful, but God's knowledge of things does not cause things to happen. God knows everything, but that is not the same thing as God causing everything. So we, we have uh, two quotes here, one from to, to this point. Neil A. Maxwell, it, to this question, says, God's knowledge does not impinge on our free agency because we do not know what is to come. And Brigham Young, in uh, August of uh, 1852, said, For a nation, for instance, in free grace are both true doctrines, but they must be properly coupled together and correctly classified so as to produce harmony between these two apparently opposite uh, doctrines. So these are things talked about within church settings, but to say uh, that, yes, that these two seemingly opposite things, they are in harmony, and to Neil A. Maxwell's point, uh, God knowing um, doesn't cause us to do uh, the thing. Right, and so... This this is, you know, so you get a little bit of the Latter-day Saint answer there. But for, for Martin Luther, who responded to Erasmus, he argued that the, that the idea that we have free will and that God is ultimately sovereign. And when I say sovereign, that means power, right? So if God is literally all-powerful, let me let, you could ask the question another way. Is there anything that takes place in the universe that God couldn't stop. Now, your thinking is a Latter-day Saint. Well, God has said he won't destroy the agency. No, no, I want you to think as a Christian. No. By the time we're done with this podcast, oh, no, I, I, no, not saying no, I won't no, think no, as a Christian. No, by the time we're, first of all, Richard will never think like a Christian. Second of all, <laughs> but I want everyone a Calvinist by the time we're done. Season 37, right as we're on the precipice of doing, uh, not practicing polygamy, but, but speaking about it in a more, uh, you know, as a as the entire season, right? Um, everyone will become a Calvinist, but the 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 point being, Martin Luther is going to say, "Is God all powerful, or isn't God all powerful?" When Erasmus says things like, "Well, look, God knows all things, but that doesn't mean that God caused all things." Martin Luther is going to say that's just all rhetorical gymnastics, right? You're, you're just trying to find a way to claim that free will exists. Because if God is all-powerful and God has all foreknowledge, then what does that mean? It means that literally anything that God wills, God knows exactly how to bring about that end. Can God change things so that his will is manifested? Um, so here's a way that he described it. Let me quote from Martin Luther's book, Responding to Erasmus. This is an English translation of it, so you might find different versions of this because he, surprisingly, being a German, Luther wrote it in German. Actually, Richard told me to just quote it from the German. That'd be great, actually. But then we also felt like that would sound even more harsh than saying that you have no free will. Um Although I, I will say, while we're talking about some guttural languages, we got an email from from Denmark. Yes, it was very nice. It was a it was a nice email. Very kind. Uh, and uh, it was uh, surprisingly uh, the they they said, you know, hi, I'm a listener from Denmark. I'm not active, but I listen to your podcast. So our goal is eventually to get you back into that church. 
or to get you just or not and but sign up for the premium no no see this is why you can't do a show with a phd almost in business because that's just the only place he's going. from nampa to denmark yep that's where that's where we go quite the reach anyway this is what martin luther says in his book it is essentially necessary and wholesome for christians to know that God foreknows nothing by contingency. Now think about what that means. Because part of the argument is that that people who are advocating free will at the time make is, well, God just knows so much that he knows what the possible outcomes of every situation might be. And that if you do X, then Y will happen And because he knows you so well, he already knows you're going to do X because God just knows you so well. You actually hear this a lot in Latter-day Saint uh, churches where someone describing uh, free will will say, well, look, you know, God, God knows us so well because we've been around forever. And, you know, it's like me knowing my son. If I, if I put a Chick-fil-A sandwich on the counter in front of my son I, I have a 100% certainty that he's going to eat it. You know, I know him so well that that's what he loves most. If I put it there, he's going to eat it. And so we use that analogy sometimes to try to say, see, that's what God's foreknowledge is like. He just knows us so well. He knows what we're going to do in any given circumstance. The problem with that analogy, look, now look, I understand why we use that analogy because it's relatable. I have a son. He likes Chick-fil-A. And yes, he's always going to eat it, right? But while it's relatable, it really isn't what we're talking about when we're talking about the foreknowledge of God. Because by experience, I've come to expect and, and have faith in and believe that my son will eat that sandwich every single time, right? But I don't actually know that. I didn't actually see him doing it before it happened, that's not foreknowledge. That's that's like very, very, very educated guessing. And maybe after a hundred times of having a hundred sandwiches on a hundred countertops, well, I only have one, but on that countertop, my son walks in the door having just eaten 17 Chick-fil-A sandwiches. And so he doesn't eat the one when he comes in. And I would have been certain that he would, but he doesn't. See, Part of the problem with the analogy of I just know him so well, I know what he's going to do, is that's not really foreknowledge. It's like a predictive insight. It's I know because of my experience what most likely is going to happen, and that likelihood might even be 99.9999999999. That's not what foreknowledge is. Well, so I mean, the church, if you're to go to, you know, the church of Jesus Christ.org. And if you were to look and guide to the scriptures and you were to look at the definition of what the church's definition of omniscient is, it's the divine trait of having all knowledge. Right. That's, that's different than what the divine right. trait of having all knowledge is not the same thing as, you know what? I'm pretty good at betting these NCAA games. <laughs> I've followed the stats. Take I've Indiana, got the numbers. Minus 25. Yeah. Or look, minus Alabama 25. is, you know, they're good shooters. Yep. I think that they've got a pretty decent shot at uh, making the final four. I mean, I haven't, I, I mean at this time, the, the picks are already out, uh, and so yeah, it's, it's too probably, late. By the time so, this sorry, is out, Ken. it's probably, yeah. Well, but they can repick each round. I mean, look, if you're a degenerate gambler, <laughs> I think we had people gambling on the length of the, the national anthem, so I'm pretty sure they can find a way to parlay this. Chris, Chris Stapleton made it a little closer than I wanted it to. I well, would say that. you know, but we were all in our seats. But, but the point that Martin Luther is making here, God foreknows nothing by contingency. By contingency, what he means is God doesn't know something because he knows what all possible outcomes might be on the basis of the agency you might choose. That's by contingency. Because God has a will. To say that God wants something that doesn't take place is to say that God is not all-powerful. So he goes on. This is Martin Luther again. God foresees purposes and does all things according to his immutable, eternal, and infallible will. By this thunderbolt, 
Free will is thrown prostrate. It is utterly dashed to pieces. Those, therefore, who would assert free will must either deny this thunderbolt or pretend not to see it or push it from them. I, however, before I establish this point by any arguments of my own and by the authority of Scripture, I will first set it forth in your words. And he goes on to quote back to Erasmus. You are claiming that God has immutable will, meaning there is nothing I can do to overcome God's will. If that's the case, if God knows everything, then now we're just having a semantic argument, right? So, if God's all-powerful and God knows what I'm going to do when I see the Chick-fil-A sandwich, then could God take steps to prevent me from eating it if he didn't want me to eat it? The answer, of course, has to be yes. If God knows what's going to happen, if God doesn't intervene, then if God doesn't intervene, it's his will that he doesn't intervene, correct? That means literally everything that happens is the will of God. If it's not, then then God's not all-powerful. This, in fact, leads to a division in Calvinist or Reformed theology, and that is, it's a great word, one that I'm sure you will share in your next testimony meeting. And that is whether you are an infralapsarian. Why are you laughing? Yeah, okay. You know what? That's exactly what I expect, an infralapsarian. Yeah, that's like, how I expect that's you That's how we do. Yeah. yeah. Or you're a supralapsarian. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? Well, laps, lapsarianism is, is, is theology about the fall of Adam. So this becomes the, the $25,000 question or whatever kind of question, the million-dollar question, uh, If God knows everything, and the only way that you can get grace and faith from God is by the gift of God, then does God decide who he is going to save before the fall, or does God decide who he's going to save after the fall. I would say that he would have had to have known before the fall who he would save you and who he wouldn't say. Supralapsarian blasphemous. That is Well, so the fall happens and then he changes his mind? He the way that an infralapsarian tries to deal with it yeah, is yeah, this yeah. way. Yeah, you bring it. <laughs> Never did I think that I would be arguing infralapsarianism with my Nampa friend. But you brought up his hometown, and the next thing you know, he's he's gone five point. He's basically a six point Calvinist at this point. There's reformed Dutch people not listening to this right now that are like, yeah, I can I can't go along with that. But um, an infralapsarian wants to make this argument: God is ultimately sovereign, and everything is God's will. Everyone deserves to go to hell because of the fall of Adam. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone deserves to be damned that God chooses to save some of those people who should be damned, God makes that choice after the fall. He he chooses who he will save. But he knew that the fall would happen, therefore he must have chosen who he would have saved, knowing full well that the fall would have happened. Uh, uh, yes, but just the argument that a supralapsarian would the make. classic supralapsarian. Yeah, yeah, but the problem is, is, is a problem of evil then. If God, if God does that, then that means God knows the evil that he is willing to take place that is the fall. But if he is all-knowing, wouldn't he have to? So this is where they start to become more Erasmus, Erasmian, Erasmus, uh, by arguing No, that's just the course of events. God didn't cause it to happen. God allowed it to happen. Now, you're right that that very quickly begs the question of why. Right. Because he does know it's going to happen. And so this is really where you get into this this infighting about 
when does God know and, and, and how does God's knowledge affect my will? Martin Luther, Alan, is going to say, you don't actually have free will. You are absolutely, utterly depraved. You, you are a sinner and there is no good thing you can do of yourself. And you can pat yourself on the back all you want about however many people's walks you shoveled because you, you live in Idaho. Oh, we don't know that uh, Alan does. Oh, oh, that's right. We know Oliver does. Oliver lives in Idaho. Alan, we don't know where he lives. We don't know where he lives. Alan, why didn't you tell us where you live? <laughs> Oliver, clearly shoveling people's walks. Um, but that's all just you, you know, making yourself feel good. The reality is everyone is completely depraved. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and no one deserves salvation at all. And God, through a gift, wills who he will save. Now, the corollary to that obviously has to be true. Does God know that the people he does not give the gift of faith to will not be saved? Absolutely. But it's not God's fault that they're not. At least that would be the argument. The argument would be, they deserve to go to hell. They deserve it. God not saving them isn't something evil on God's part. It's justice. They deserve to go. So to hell. this is the beauty, though, of of the of the restoration yeah. of what Joseph brings. Yeah, this to. isn't a Calvinist. Podcast. Yeah, we don't. We don't. <laughs> yeah. Just like everyone knows. A turn. This isn't what we believe. <laughs> I was trying to say what Martin Luther and others. No, believe. but so this is the beauty of it, right? Because it takes this thing that that where it's like, well, if he knows that the fall is going to happen and he can stop it, then. And, or why did he create Adam this way or any of these things? And to say then that not only did he know that the fall was going to happen, but it's it's the main part. Right. And that's, I mean, it's interesting. As I said, you listen to, you listen to R.C. Sproul's book on, um, uh, on predestination, on the election, on being elect. You know, this Calvinist idea that God, again, it goes back to if God's sovereign, God does what God intends to do. If God wants to save someone, God does it, right? To say that God wants to save someone and that God can't figure out how to do it is to say that God is no powerful. So however squeamish it makes you to sit in your Calvinist seat and say, you know, God didn't intend to save everyone because that does, that makes us feel very uncomfortable. For for Sproul, I mean, he's going to make the, the same conclusion Calvin made, and that is, the only way God is ultimately sovereign, meaning absolutely all-powerful, is if all of the people that God intends to save, God gets what God wants. And when you say, well, why shouldn't God save more people? Well, because he shouldn't save anyone. He's so gracious that he saves someone. Now, Joseph, of course, is going to turn that entire thing on its head by advocating in an article of faith. Now, we, we sometimes will we'll talk about the Articles of Faith as if they were like scripture in Joseph's time. I, I, I'll always have people say things like, well, why was Joseph like hiding from the authorities if the Articles of Faith said we believe in being, you know, subject to the king? Like, well, first of all, that becomes scripture in 1880, right? So, and the person who made it scripture would himself then be hiding from <laughs> anti-polygamy authorities. So, so I, it... We, we sometimes get a little too legalistic with that. Uh, the reality is... Pay the, your taxes. The, first of all, everyone pay your taxes. End transmission <laughs> to the CIA. But uh, if the IRS is listening... But no, the, the, the reality is that, that these, these things that the prophets speak, they clearly see that, you know, hiding from anti-polygamy marshals even though that is a violation of the laws of the land, well, that doesn't seem to transgress the laws of God. That, that, that's how they see it. Now, Joseph's going to teach in that that there is no original sin, that all men are judged for their own sins. Now, everyone's going to sin because we, have a, we, we are fallen, but you are not condemned at, because of this original sin that's being passed on, that, that everyone's going to be judged for their own sins. And that causes Joseph to take a very different view of what is talked about with uh, foreordination and, and predestination in uh, the scriptures. In fact, Joseph's going to give a sermon um, 
in uh, May of 1843, here Joseph is going to directly engage in the scripture that, you know, is fought over and fought over and fought over. And that is Paul teaching that there were those who were uh, elected to be saved, that were that were predestined is the terminology that is used. And so Joseph in, in the sermon, he says, why did God say to Pharaoh, for this cause I have raised thee up? Because Pharaoh was a fit instrument, a wicked man, and had committed acts of cruelty of the most atrocious nature. The election of the promised seed still continues. And in the last days, they shall have the priesthood restored unto them. And they shall be the saviors on Mount Zion, the ministers of our God. If it were not for the remnant which is left, then we might be a Sodom and Gomorrah. The whole of the chapter had reference to the priesthood and the house of Israel. And unconditional election of individuals to eternal life was not taught by the apostles. So he's making this very clear, that what Paul is doing, he is not saying that some people were unconditionally elected, uh, the way that essentially all Reformed theologians are saying, Calvinist theologians are saying, God chose who he would give the gift of faith to, and because God made the choice, you didn't do anything to earn it, it's unconditional election, and it's irresistible, that grace is. You, you can't stop it, because you have no sovereign will, only God has will, and God chose you. And God didn't choose you because you were good, God chose you because he chose you. And Joseph is specifically refuting that doctrine. He is saying that the doctrine of unconditional election of individuals to eternal life was not taught by the apostles. God did elect or predestinate that all those who would be saved should be saved in Christ Jesus and through obedience to the gospel. But he passes over no man's sins, but visits them with correction. So, that's how Joseph uh, interprets this idea of predestination, that the predestination is that God predestines that if you accept Jesus, then you will have exaltation, right? That, that, that's the predestination. The predestination, again, because Joseph is dealing with a theology that a Christian can't deal with. He's dealing with a theology that has a premortal world. So back to your original question. We see agency not just as something that God decided to do, and we were like, hey, that sounds great. We actually see agency as an eternal principle, meaning whatever God knows, however his foreknowledge is in existence, it does not cause you... <clears throat> in any way to act the way that you do. However much God might nudge you, as Richard pointed out in our in our pre-show, you know, Layman and Lemuel, I, I say pre-show, it's seven seconds before we hit record. Hey, what about Layman and Lemuel? And then, then we, <laughs> all right, we're yeah, done. He said, hey, what about Layman and Lemuel? I'm like, and welcome to the Standard <laughs> of Truth podcast. Um, but Richard makes this great point that you have this, this, incredible, miraculous, angelic experience. And that's not even counting, remember, Nephi shocking them and the waves are stopping because Nephi prays. I mean, they have lots of miracles. But the the fact that they see an angel, I mean, it is one of the craziest parts of all of the Book of Mormon that they're beating Nephi. So, I mean, look, first of all, angels not catching them at their best, right? I mean, they're in the middle of beating Nephi. So, so there you go, right? But this angel appears to miraculous, tells them to stop, they stop. And when the angel tells them, go, and God will deliver Laban into your hands, the moment that angel is gone, they begin to regress. The moment they're out of the presence of that angel, how is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands. For behold, he is a mighty man, and he can command 50. Yeah, he can slay 50. Then why not us, right? That, that, that 
the, the secular doubt, there's no possible way we can beat this, this guy who, who, who can command 50. And then, of course, Nephi says, well, let us go up and be strong like unto Moses, for he truly spoken of the waters of the Red Sea. And they divided hither and thither, right? That, that you can do whatever God commands you to do. Well, Laban and Lemuel weren't convinced. They, weren't, they didn't get saving faith because of this miraculous experience. Even though God sends an angel, their agency still allowed them to choose, to choose not God. In fact, the whole fact that we believe in a war in heaven means God allowed, no matter how great his arguments were, a third of those heaven to choose to leave his presence. It's not because God didn't come up with a better argument. It's not because he wasn't like, oh, if only I'd studied more of, you know, Richard's version of Homer, then... You know, if I could get Dolph Lundgren to speak as well as, as Sylvester Stallone, we could have won this. No, they have a perfect understanding of the argument. They just reject it. So it sometimes might feel like a paradox, but I think you take Elder, Nel Elder Maxwell's, you know, uh, explanation. Look, both of those things are true. God has ultimate foreknowledge and you have free will. And someday you will understand the interplay between the two. But I do believe that we are more like Dickens in believing that the whole point of Christmas Carol is that there are shadows of things that can, you know, that, that can be changed. And, and, you know, Scrooge is as good as his word and he changes. Well, so to that point, Wilfred Woodruff says... Uh, the Lord showed me by vision and revelation exactly what would take place if we did not stop this practice. Speaking of polygamy. Right. You brought that in there. A little bit of a polygamy I, reference. He I snuck did, it in. He snuck it in. But, but that, that is, if this thing continues the way that it is. If these shadows remain unchanged. Unaltered yeah. by the future. Yeah. And, and that would make a Reformed theologian, a Calvinist, feel very uncomfortable. You are claiming that your will in any way affects what God has designed. And a Latter-day Saint essentially responds, what God has designed is that our will is operative. So thank you so much for joining us, and we'll catch you again next week on the Standard of Truth podcast. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.